Chapter three of Penrod and Sam. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jonathan Burchard. April two thousand nine. Penrod and Sam by Booth Tarkington. Chapter three. The Militarist. Penrod Schofield, having been kept in for the unjust period of twenty minutes after school, emerged to a deserted street. That is, the street was deserted so far as Penrod was concerned. Here and there people were to be seen upon the sidewalks, but they were adults, and they and the shade-trees had about the same quality of significance in Penrod's consciousness. Usually he saw grown people in the mass, which is to say, they were virtually invisible to him, though exceptions must be taken in favor of policemen, firemen, street-car conductors, motormen, and all other men in any sort of uniform or regalia. But this afternoon none of these met the roving eye and Penrod set out upon his homeward way wholly dependent upon his own resources. To one of Penrod's inner texture, a mere unadorned walk from one point to another was intolerable, and he had not gone a block without achieving some slight remedy for the tameness of life. An electric light pole at the corner, invested with powers of observation, might have been surprised to find itself suddenly enacting a role of dubious honor in improvised melodrama. Penrod approaching gave the pole a look of sharp suspicion, then one of conviction, slapped it lightly and contemptuously with his open hand, passed on a few paces, then turned abruptly, and pointing his right forefinger, uttered the symbolic word, BING! The plot was somewhat indefinite, yet nothing is more certain than that the electric light pole had first attempted something against him, then growing bitter when slapped, and stealing after him to take him treacherously in the back, had got itself shot through and through by one too old in such warfare to be caught off his guard. Leaving the body to lie where it was, he placed the smoking pistol in a holster at his saddle-bow. He had decided that he was mounted, and proceeded up the street. At intervals he indulged himself in other encounters, reining in at first suspicion of ambush with a muttered, "'Whoa, Charlie!' or "'Whoa, Mike!' or even "'Whoa, Washington!' for preoccupation with the enemy outweighed attention to the details of theatrical consistency, though the steed's varying names were at least harmoniously masculine, since a boy, in these creative moments, never rides a mare. And having brought Charlie or Mike or Washington to a standstill, Penrod would draw the sure weapon from its holster and, bing, 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 let them have it. It is not to be understood that this was a noisy performance, or even an obvious one. It attracted no attention from any pedestrian, and it was to be perceived only that a boy was proceeding up the street at a somewhat irregular gait. Three or four years earlier, when Penrod was seven or eight, he would have shouted, BING! at the top of his voice. He would have galloped openly. All the world might have seen that he bestrode a charger. But a change had come upon him with advancing years. Although the grown people in sight were indeed to him as walking trees, his dramas were accomplished principally by suggestion and symbol. His woes and bings were delivered in a husky whisper, and his equestrianism was established by action mostly of the mind, the accompanying artistry of the feet being unintelligible to the passer-by. And yet, though he concealed from observation the stirring little scenes he thus enacted, a love of realism was increasing within him. Early childhood is not fastidious about the accessories of its drama, a cane is vividly a gun which may instantly as vividly become a horse but at penrod's time of life the lath sword is no longer satisfactory indeed he now had a vague sense that weapons of wood were unworthy to the point of being contemptible and ridiculous and he employed them only when he was alone and unseen 
For months a yearning had grown more and more poignant in his vitals, and this yearning was symbolized by one of his most profound secrets. In the inner pocket of his jacket he carried a bit of wood whittled into the distant likeness of a pistol, but not even Sam Williams had seen it. The wooden pistol never knew the light of day, save when Penrod was in solitude, and yet it never left his side except at night, when it was placed under his pillow. Still, it did not satisfy. It was but the token of his yearning and his dream. With all his might and main, Penrod longed for one thing beyond all others. He wanted a real pistol. That was natural. That was natural. Pictures of real pistols being used to magnificently romantic effect were upon almost all the billboards in town the year round, and as for the movie shows, they could not have lived an hour unpistoled. In the drug store, where Penrod bought his candy and soda when he was in funds, he would linger to turn the pages of periodicals whose illustrations were fascinatingly pistolic. Some of the magazines upon the very library table at home were sprinkled with pictures of people, usually in evening clothes, pointing pistols at other people. Nay, the library board of the town had emitted a selected list of fifteen books for boys, and Penrod had read fourteen of them with pleasure. But as the fifteenth contained no weapons in the earlier chapters and held forth little prospect of any shooting at all, he abandoned it halfway, and read the most sanguinary of the other fourteen over again. So, the daily food of his imagination being gun, what wonder that he thirsted for the real. He passed from the sidewalk into his own yard, with a subdued bing inflicted upon the stolid person of a gatepost, and entering the house through the kitchen, ceased to bing for a time. However, driven back from the forepart of the house by a dismal sound of callers, he returned to the kitchen and sat down. "'Della,' he said to the cook, "'do you know what I'd do if you was a crook and I had my automatic with me?' Della was industrious and preoccupied. "'If I was a cook,' she repeated ignorantly, and with no cordiality, "'well, I am a cook. I'm a cookin' right now. Either gwine in the house where you belong, or get out in the yard.' Penrod chose the latter, and betook himself slowly to the back fence, where he was greeted in a boisterous manner by his wistful little old dog, Duke, returning from some affair of his own in the alley. "'Get down,' said Penrod coldly, and bestowed a spiritless bing upon him. At this moment a shout was heard from the alley, "'Yay, Penrod!' and the sandy head of Comrade Sam Williams appeared above the fence. "'Come on over,' said Penrod. As Sam obediently climbed the fence, the little old dog, Duke, moved slowly away. But presently, glancing back over his shoulder and seeing the two boys standing together, he broke into a trot and disappeared round a corner of the house. He was a dog of long and enlightening experience, and he made it clear that the conjunction of Penrod and Sam portended events which from his point of view might be unfortunate. Duke had a forgiving disposition, but he also possessed a melancholy wisdom. In the company of either Penrod or Sam, alone, affection often caused him to linger, albeit with a little pessimism. But when he saw them together, he invariably withdrew in as unobtrusive a manner as haste would allow. "'What you doin?' Sam asked. "'Nothin'. What you?' "'I'll show you if you come over to our house,' said Sam, who was wearing an important and secretive expression. "'What for?' Penrod showed little interest. "'Well, I said I'd show you if you came on over, didn't I?' "'But you haven't got anything I haven't got,' said Penrod indifferently. "'I know everything that's in your yard and in your stable. 
And there isn't a... I didn't say it was in the yard or in the stable, did I? Well, there ain't anything in your house, returned Penrod frankly, that I'd walk two feet to look at. Not a thing. Oh, no, Sam assumed mockery. Oh, no, you wouldn't. You know what it is, don't you? Yes, you do. Penrod's curiosity stirred somewhat. Well, all right, he said. I got nothing to do. I just as soon go. What is it? You wait and see, said Sam as they climbed the fence. I bet your old eyes'll open pretty far in about a minute or so. I bet they don't. It takes a good deal to get me excited, unless it's something mighty. You'll see, Sam promised. He opened an alley gate and stepped into his own yard in a manner signaling caution, though the exploit thus far certainly required none, and Penrod began to be impressed and hopeful. They entered the house silently encountering no one, and Sam led the way upstairs, tiptoeing, implying unusual and increasing peril. Turning in the upper hall, they went into Sam's father's bedroom, and Sam closed the door with a caution so genuine that already Penrod's eyes began to fulfill his host's prediction. Adventures in another boy's house are trying to the nerves, and another boy's father's bedroom, when invaded, has a violated sanctity that is almost appalling. Penrod felt that something was about to happen, something much more important than he anticipated. Sam tiptoed across the room to a chest of drawers, and kneeling, carefully pulled out the lowest drawer until the surface of its contents, Mr. Williams' winter underwear, lay exposed. Then he fumbled beneath the garments and drew forth a large object, displaying it triumphantly to the satisfactorily dumbfounded Penrod. It was a blue steel Colt's revolver, of the heaviest pattern made in the seventies. Mr. Williams had inherited it from Sam's grandfather, a small man, a deacon, and dyspeptic, and it was larger and more horrible than any revolver either of the boys had ever seen in any picture, moving or stationary. Moreover, greenish bullets of great size were to be seen in the chambers of the cylinder, suggesting massacre rather than mere murder. This revolver was real, and it was loaded. End of chapter 3